Good morning, Village Church. All right. Woo. Someone's excited. Love it. All right. Open up your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11. We're in a series on faith. There is a personal trainer in our church. His name is Wade. Wade, uh, I enjoy Wade. Many of you know Wade. Wade had no idea I was going to say this. But Wade uh, and I, we met for about three months. And uh, I loved meeting with Wade because when we met, Wade had a personal plan for my body. And one of the first times we met, Wade, Wade called me Dad Bod. And uh, his vision for me was to kill Dad Bod. And he, would, he kept calling me Dad Bod. He was going to get rid of Dad Bod. And, uh, and I was doing really well for like three months. I just did amazing. And then uh, totally separate from him, I hurt my shoulder, my shoulder, my wrist, and my knee. I don't know what I was doing, but something just gave out of my body. I became old man fueling all at once. And then like, and so I, I am not a good representation of what Wade is capable of accomplishing in humanity. But one of the things I loved about Wade, I learned a lot about discipleship in meeting with Wade. Wade had a plan for me. He had a very crystal clear plan. And in order for me to go from where I was to where I, he wanted me to be, I was going to have to do some very weird and some very hard things. Um, we would get done um, with my time with Wade. There were moments where I literally almost um, lost it because he had worked me so intentionally and he exposed in the process a number of my weaknesses. Here's what I, I learned about my time with Wade. I learned in the same way that a good personal trainer has a very clear plan for each one of his clients. God, for every child of his, has a very clear and detailed and specific plan to take you from where you are to where he wants you to be and to develop and deepen your faith. God, every one of you, God has a plan to grow your faith. I've learned a couple things anecdotally about watching God grow people's faith. Number one, he's going to ask you to do hard things. Um, doing easy things doesn't grow your faith. Doing hard things grows your faith. None of the exercises Wade gave me to do were easy. Even stretching was hard for me. And he had to teach me form and technique and different things like that. But this is the same with God. God is going to ask you to do hard things to deepen and grow your faith. Number two, God is going to ask you to do unique things or weird things. He's going to ask you to do things that may not even feel logical right now, but they are strategic for his long-term goal. Find me too many people in scripture that God did not ask to do very weird, abnormal things. God loves to take his kids and ask them to do strange things. Number three, God loves to ask us to do preparing things. There are things that we do now. We don't totally understand why God's asking us to do it. But in God's strategic mind, he's building skills in us and experiences in us that will prepare us for whatever he has in the future for us. So um, in the 90s, I went to Michigan State University. I have to just make this clear in the front end. Uh, Public secular college campus culture in the 90s is very different than culture today on secular college campuses. I mean, I can't even quite explain it. Unless you're there, it's really hard to articulate some of those differences. So I'll tell you some of the things that I did, but they may not actually make sense, and I don't even know that God would 
ask me to do this in today's cultural climate. But um, one of the things I had a clear sense that God was asking me to do was to do some hard things. I've shared with you in the past, um, in my first year at Michigan State, I believe that God asked me to share the gospel with one person every single day I was at school. Now, that's kind of hard to do for most of us, but when you're on a college campus and you're surrounded by 50,000 people, the majority of whom don't know Jesus, um, there's a lot of people to talk to. So every single day, I would get up and I would share the gospel with somebody, and I looked so dumb so many times, but I was like, God, this is what you want me to do. So I kept doing it. Now, here's one of the things I really felt in the first year of my time at Michigan State God asked me to do. I don't, I'm not saying he's going to ask other people to do this, but here's what I felt like he wanted me to do. He wanted me to share the gospel in every single paper that I wrote. <sighs> so the science of sound, let me just read you the kind of things that would happen. This was my class. The science of sound is deep in my appreciation, not just for the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but for the little things like hearing. At every corner, I would get these papers and I would write, I would just sneak in like, this reminds me of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Anyways, uh, astronomy, as I gaze upon the stars, I'm reminded the creator is greater than the creation. Jesus spoke and God made each one of us. And I would go off and do an explanation of faith. And then I always made sure that they knew it's not by works. The ex-Catholic in me was like, I need to make sure, in case there's some of you, it's not by works, by faith. And uh, one time we were in class and it was about, I was like 30, 35 people in the class. And uh, it was the first day, it met once a week, it was a three-hour class, and there were at least three other Christians that I personally knew in this class, um, one of whom I grew up with. Uh, we, had this, we had the same youth pastor, same church. And so the teacher asked everybody two questions. What is your name, and what is the most important thing in your life? Okay, this is like a softball, right? When somebody says that to you, you say... Jesus, right? Like, done. So all of my Christian friends, one by one, buckle under the pressure, and they say, oh, my family, or this, mostly my family. Like, that's the way they do it. And I'm sitting here, and my heart is out of my chest, and I'm quivering, and, and I'm like, my name is Michael Fueling, and Jesus is the most important thing, and I looked like a moron, you know? But, like, I'm thinking, why, God, are you putting me in these circumstances? You haven't asked any other Christians to do this as far as I know, and I'm sitting here writing astronomy papers on, like, the gospel and how the stars remind me of it. It was interesting because what I thought was so incredibly dumb— God was actually deepening in me courage. He was killing my fear of man. He was getting me prepared to publicly talk about things that would make me look, we'll just say, um, not great in front of people who disagree. Um, one of my classes, which uh, was just a super meaningful class, uh, I was with the head of the two LGBT communities, and we, I was in a small group with each of them. And regularly we would talk about faith, and then I would have to talk to them about what I believe about things. And it was just an interesting world where God regularly put me in these really heated circumstances. And I realize now, looking back, God was developing in me faith. He was developing in me courage because he was going to ask me to do things that took faith and courage. But here's what I've learned. The same way that God interacts with me, it's the same way that he interacts with you. God has a meticulous, specific, detailed plan to develop your faith. And God is going to ask you to do unique, weird, hard things. Why? So that he can prepare you for whatever is next. I don't care if you're 70, 80 years old, or you're 10 or 12 years old. God has a plan to develop your faith. And until you're dead, he's going to deepen your faith. This is what he does. And so as we get into this um, sermon series, I just want to tell you my big goal. My big goal is to encourage you 
to deepen your faith. My, my goal is to encourage you to trust God more so that when God asks you to do the hard, weird, unique things, that you would be willing to courageously step into these things. For some of you, he's going to ask you to do very big things. And for some of you, he's going to ask you to start small. He's going to ask you to have a conversation. He's going to ask you to say you're sorry. He's going to ask you to start disciplines in your life. For some of you, he's just going to go to some really big things. And my desire for you is that you would walk into these moments. And I'll tell you this, I have never, ever, ever regretted doing what God has asked me to do. I have been petrified. I have uh, regretted doing the right things in dumb ways. I have done that often. I've walked into things that I thought were the right thing, and they were, but I wasn't kind in the process. I've regretted sinning in the process, but there's never been a moment where I have gone and done the hard thing that God's asked me to do, where I've been mad at him, and I've said, I can't believe you asked me to do that. At every moment, his grace and his encouragement were with me, and I left just having this sense of, it is so good to even do the hard, petrifying things if the Lord asked me to do them. So Hebrews chapter 11, you go there. I want to um, define faith, make sure we're all on the same page. Culturally, faith is this really foundationless, unhelpful, elusive idea. Just believe in yourself. It's really just rubbish and means absolutely nothing by and large. Uh, makes you feel good for about five minutes, and then you realize there's no substance, and it fails you. The biblical definition of faith, true faith, is much deeper. It's much more robust. It's much more beautiful. And the Greek word is pistis. It's my favorite Greek word, I think. You can see why, because it's awesome. And uh, in the English, it's translated in three ways, primarily. Number one is faith. Number two is trust. And number three is belief. One Greek word, pistis, but you can see that even the English language is groping for understanding and clarity to the term. Um, this term is it's, it's robust, it's thick, it's not just mental assent, it's not just a good feeling or trust in somebody emotionally. It's a much bigger concept than this. And I'll give you a quick definition. It's confident trust based on a reliable relationship. So last week I gave you the illustration of my four-year-old who, um, from the sixth step, throws his body out into the air with full confidence, even though he has not warned me nor told me, nor am I even facing him, that I will most certainly catch him. Why does he have that confidence? Because I've never, ever let him go. It was not a blind leap. It was a certain leap into a certain future because he knew his dad and he knew his dad would catch him. That's pistis. That's faith. That is trust. It's not just an idea. It's not just an emotion. It's something that culminates into an actual decision of trusting. And so we went over a few things last week. Number one, trust, faith, pistis is fundamentally relational. It's about how you and God react. It's like a father and a son, a mother and a daughter. It's the kind of way the two interact with each other. When the son or the daughter goes to the mom and dad and has just that implicit, intuitive confidence and trust, and they live that out, this is what trust or pistis means. It's fundamentally relational. Pistis is also a lens. Um, it is a lens that allows us to see with clarity reality. And the word of God is given to those with true faith. And now we look at all of reality through the lens of God's word. And we see things for what they really, truly, and eternally are. It is also a gift. Faith is not something you can muster up from your own awesome will. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is a supernatural gift that God gives to 
people. You can grow the gift God gives to you, but you cannot conjure it up out of nowhere. And if God gives you the gift of faith, here's what it means. You are saved. You are sealed. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are a child. You are secure. You are forgiven. You will go to heaven. If you have true faith, even just a mustard seed. It can never be given away. You can't give it back. It is a supernatural reality that is now a forever part of your life. Number four, it's a spectrum. God gives some people a one out of 10, and God gives some people a 10 out of 10. Some people get avocados, some people get mustard seeds, right? And I I don't know why you might think that's not fair. We saw last week that God In the same way he chooses your DNA and your hair color and your skin tone and your mom and your dad, he does it all with purpose and intention. And he does it and he gives you amount of faith because he is intentionally working in you. He didn't give you the 10 because he has a different plan for you than he does for the person with the 10. We saw it's a spectrum. And then finally we saw that when God's people exercise pistis, this faith, God applauds and he loves it and it makes him genuinely happy just like when my daughters wail in my chest because they trust me and they pour their heart out to me, that same emotion of satisfaction and pleasure that a mom and dad has when the son trusts, when the daughter trusts, that same kind of emotional response is what God has. It's meaningful to him. So true faith is at least all these things. Now what I want to do I want to share with you just some stuff you need to know about true faith. That's what the title of this message is. And these are going to be things that, for some of you, it it might make you a little reticent about faith. But I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you these things. Some of them are hard. Some of them are good. Some of them are fun. Many of them aren't. But look at your notes. Number one says, expect your faith will be. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah better translated, because of faith, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. What is the event yet unseen? A flood. Right, good job. You've read the Bible. Good job. It's a flood. Noah and the ark. Good job. We're on the same page. In reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Number 1.1, expect your faith will be confusing. Not just for you, but for everybody watching you. Expect that people will look at the things that God asks you to do, and they might say, he's off his rockers. What's he doing? He's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Like, why is he not thinking? Like, this isn't even logical. I love this. He was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. I mean, this is the promise. Okay, Noah, there's going to be a global flood, and everyone's going to die. God, why would you do this? Because they're evil and terrible. And Noah, at that point, would say, you're pretty right. They're the worst human beings I ever could possibly imagine. I see why you're going to execute them and give them no opportunity to come back to you. That makes sense. But, but Noah, I need you to do this. Okay, God, when I go tell people what you're going to do, they're going to think I am crazy. Yep. Could you tell them? Nope. Okay. So God, are we going to do this like next week and you're going to build this big barge in the middle of the desert for me? Uh, Nope, you're going to do it. When are you going to do it? 120 years. Okay. So you want me to abandon my lifestyle, go to my children and my wife and my family and say, hey guys, by the way, we're going to build a big boat in the middle of the desert. Yep. 
Why? Because God's going to kill everybody. Okay, do you realize how this makes me sound? The answer is, yes, we do. And yet, all of the people who saw this, here's what we know. It didn't make sense to them. Because they didn't have faith. They did not have the lens to see the world as God really made it. All they saw was selfishness, self-gratification, evil, me, 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 me. Noah saw it differently. Noah saw the world through the lens of God's word. And even though in those 120 years it made no sense to anybody else, Noah believed. Noah trusted. Why? Because God had never let him down. Number two, expect your faith will be mocked. I love this. In reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. We already said this, 120 years, 120 years, every time somebody would come up to Noah, they would say, why are you building an ark? Because you're evil and God's going to kill you. But if you want to come in, you can be saved. And he was considered to be, according to the New Testament, a herald of righteousness, somebody who proclaimed with integrity the truth about the coming judgment and the character of God in over 120 years. Do you know how many people converted and jumped on that boat when the rains came? None. His family, and that was it. Not one. For 120 years, this guy, every day of his life, it was a living testimony to the inevitable judgment and condemnation of God on the whole world. And you better believe it. A world and a culture as wicked as this was in this day, they didn't treat him kindly. But every day he got up because he believed. He believed what the Lord had said. He trusted in him. And it wasn't just an emotion. It wasn't a cognitive thing. He believed to the point where it actually changed how he lived and how he saw the future. Expect to be mocked. Expect your faith will be offensive. By this, because of his faith, he condemned the world. That somehow a part of his message landed as condemnation to the rest of the world. We live in a climate that amazingly, just in the past few years, now it is acceptable and common lingo to look at every one of you who believe in Jesus Christ and the authority of God's word, that you are now a racist, a bigot, a misogynist, a patriarchal, whatever, and that these are normal, standard terms used for you, not because you're mean. Some Christians are mean, don't get me wrong. You don't even have to be mean. All someone has to do now is say, what do you believe about X, Y, or Z? And if you don't give the right answer, the automatic conclusion in their mind is you're a bigot. You haven't even done anything. You're just agreeing with God's word. You're agreeing, honestly, many people with what thousands of years of human history everybody's ever believed. But now, in the blink of an eye, culturally in the last just few years, just your very existence is offensive. The very reality of what you believe, even if you are kind. It's interesting because when I interact with non-Christians, I don't have, honestly, an ounce of judgment or condemnation. Um, I have no issues being friends and having them over to my house and their kids playing with my kids. Like, none of this stuff. And so even where I feel like I have this just enormous amount of love for people, the moment in this culture... I don't agree with one of their hot-button issues. The relationship is over. You know how I know this? Because many of you are dealing with this, not just with your neighbors, but in your family. There are now people who have families, they don't even speak to each other, not because you were mean, not because you were insensitive, but because you believe something. Isn't that amazing? 
You, this is one of the hard realities about faith in this emerging cultural context that it is going to be very hard for you to just slide behind the scenes, just to just be quiet. The moment you're asked, it's hard to even give an answer. And this is part of the context that we find ourselves in, but it's not all bad. Number four, expect your faith will be a blessing. Here's what he says. He constructed the ark for the saving of his household, for the saving of his household. I mean, I, I imagine the same papa bear instinct in Noah is the same mama bear and papa bear instinct in every mom and dad in this room. That if you heard your house was on fire, what is the first thought that goes through your head? No, it's not your guitar, it is not your dog, and it's not your cat. It is your son, it's your daughter. And there is this, this wave of concern that every mom and dad can get. And, and the Bible wants to make it very clear out of his deep concern for his children and their spouses and his grandchildren, he built this ark. And this entire family was saved because of his faith. His faith was a blessing that would reverberate in their lives for generations, even though they were not great kids all the time. But his faith saved them and ultimately saved humanity. I think one of the greatest, most amazing blessings, grandmas and grandpas and moms and dads, you get to give your kids is to do big, hard, weird things for Jesus so that what your kids see is not a mom and dad who just preach the gospel, but truly believe it in their soul to the point when God asks them to do hard things, we do it. I would love for my kids to look at us and be able to say, here are the hard things we saw mom and dad do for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is a gospel message that when accompanied with the actual words of the gospel, lands profoundly and deeply on the soul of a son, daughter, or grandchild. But your faith has the opportunity to bless not just your immediate family, but generations to come. Number five, expect your faith will be your salvation. Here's what he says. By this, because of his faith, he, Noah, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, we, we have to make this clear that Noah was saved in the exact same way every one of you are saved. Now, I have to dismantle something for some of you in this room. Uh, there is a universal spiritual law of this universe that God has injected into reality. It is a spiritual law that nobody can get around, nobody can mess with, you can't deny it, uh, because one day you're going to come face to face with this law, with this rule that is God's rule. Here's the rule. Nobody, not one single human being, is ever, ever allowed to get into heaven because they were good. Nobody. That is a, that is a fundamental rule in this universe. Nobody who tries to get into heaven by being good gets there. It is impossible. It's like me jumping 100 feet in the air. The laws of gravity make it impossible for me to do that. The spiritual laws of this universe make it impossible for anybody who is good to get to heaven because of their good works. It's not plausible. The only way anybody ever will go to heaven is by not being good, but by having faith in Jesus who is good for us. It is not by giving money to the church. It's by trusting in Jesus who paid the price for us. There is no amount of good works you can accumulate to make your relationship with God okay. Let me give you an illustration of how many people perceive being good. Here's what they say. Well, God should let me into heaven because I believe in him and I'm a good person. Okay. That's like me and my wife having a very serious, painful argument where I have wounded her. And I come up to her and I say, 
come on, why are you still mad? Look at all the good things I did for Jimmy and Bobby and Susie and all these other people. I was so nice to them. Why do we still have a problem? And she'll look at me and say, I don't care what you did for them. You and me, we're not okay. You could be Mother Teresa for all I care, but you and me aren't okay because this relationship is fundamentally broken. Okay? Do you see the difference? That's how most people think. They think that they can fix their relationship with God by treating other people kindly. But let me tell you, your husband and your wife and your estranged son or daughter would never put up with that. Never. And neither will God. Because your fundamental issue with God is not how good or bad you were to other people. It's that your relationship with him is broken. And the only way to make that relationship okay is faith in Jesus. That is it. That's it. And so this is why when people say good people go to heaven, I'm like, you fundamentally misunderstood the problem. The problem is not how you treat other people. The problem is you and God. That's the problem. And so God in his mercy and grace has offered free forgiveness and salvation for anyone who would trust in him. That should be a load off, by the way, because if you had to work for it, could you imagine the pressure? You're like Sisyphus trying to get up the mountain. It's never, ever going to happen. Put number two in your notes. Expect your faith will require. Uh, We're going to jump to verse 23. We're going to look at the life of Moses to finish this. And God, I'll be honest, he asks what I feel like sometimes are impossibly difficult things of his people. Let's look at what he says. Number one in your notes, expect sometimes true faith will require defiance. So for many of you, we're safe, we're comfortable, we're easy, everybody's good, no one's going to come knock on your door, nobody's going to take your children, nobody's going to kill you, you're fine. But around the world, that is not reality. Around the world, this message, what I'm about to tell you, is pure gold. For you, it's bronze. For you, it's pennies you lose in the couch. But I'm telling you right now, there are mothers and fathers who watch their children executed. I'm telling you right now that the kind of faith that requires defiance is being exercised by your brothers and sisters and my brothers and sisters in this world in profound, meaningful, gut-wrenching, soul-crushing ways. And so I can't tell you like what's going to happen in a year or two or ten, but here's what I do know. Um, I know that nations and cultures can turn on a dime I know that I cannot even begin to tell you what is going to happen in our cultural climate in the next year, let alone the next 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. Here's what I do know. I do know that you need to take this truth, put it in your pocket, and you need to be ready. And so here's what it requires. It will require, likely, defiance. By faith, because of their faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. Love this line. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Pharaoh was unhappy with the growth of the Israelite population, so he ordered the Egyptian midwives to kill all of the the male babies of Israelite women. So imagine you give birth, and you don't know what's about to happen, and an Egyptian midwife comes and executes your baby on the spot. Could you just imagine the gut-wrenching problems? And these midwives, there's a few of them who are faithful to God, and they wouldn't do it. So Um, Pharaoh says, fine, I want all, all of the babies done. I want them all killed. Every single baby of a a male baby of a Jewish mother, I want them all murdered. If you were this baby's mom, if you were Moses's mom and dad, you tell me what would you do? I would die before I let some soldier come into my home and kill my child, right? I would give up everything. I would do whatever it took. And this is what I love. What I love about this is what it says at the end. They were not afraid 
of the king's edict. I want to talk to you about true faith because true faith really does. It rises to the occasion. Even if you're like a one out of 10 and you struggle, there are moments when push comes to shove, when really you get down to it, your true faith will erupt and it will take control. It's interesting because sometimes people who struggle to trust God in the small things, when the big moments in life come up, true faith rises to the occasion and does powerful things. And there's something about true faith when faced with these moments, our fear of what could be for us goes out the window. We are willing to put our lives on the line. Why? Because true faith erupts in us. It has this powerful instinct. I want to show you a picture to illustrate this. Um, This is a picture of a deer, and these cheetahs are holding the deer in place. You can tell, obviously, what's about to happen. Um, The photographer who took this picture tells us what's happening in the context. This mother deer, her eyes are watching her little baby fawns run away. And so what this mother did is the photographer watched the entire um, events unfold. The, the mother deer distracted the cheetahs, gave up her body, kept her eyes on her fawns, and watched them run away. And that same instinct in you is in every single mom and dad. When the house is burning, you run in and you will die before you let something happen. In the same way, when you have true faith, it has instincts. And these instincts rise up in these moments of testing. And when there is a moment required of each one of us or some of us to be defiant for the sake of Jesus Christ, I know it may petrify you, but the Lord Jesus will give you strength in that moment. He will give you what you need. It's the instinct of true faith. In the same way, this deer has this instinct in her. True faith, when given by God, whether it's a mustard seed or an avocado, it will respond in moments of trial with fearless defiance. Number 2.2. Expect often true faith will require discernment. Look at verse 24. By faith or because of faith, Moses, when he was grown up, watch these verbs, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach, which means accusation or the mockery or the condescending words of the Egyptians to him. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. Let's look at these verbs. He refused status. Every Egyptian had to ask this question. Why? Why would you possibly, you're the grandson of Pharaoh, the king. Why would you give all of this up? Why would you choose mistreatment, identification with an oppressed weak, faithless slave community over the prosperity and the wealth and the position and the power of being in Pharaoh's family? What, what do you, why would you choose mistreatment? Why would you reject the pleasures of sin and entertainment and women for a desert? You know, before Israel in the wilderness was there for 40 years, before that, did you know Moses alone was in the wilderness for 40 years? He got married there, had a family, lived in isolation in the wilderness, right? Why would you choose 40 years in a wilderness when you can have all the pleasures of Egypt? They had to wonder, why is, why is being made fun of more valuable to you than enjoying all these pleasures. Why? I'll give you the answer. Because Moses had discernment. 
Let me define this for you. Discernment is seeing things for what they really are. Moses was able to look at the power, the position, and the pleasures, and he was able to see them as fleeting. He was able to see them as temporary, temporary and passing, not eternal. Uh, I want to share with you one of my favorite illustrations. It's of the marshmallow. And in the 1960s, Stanford University did a study on marshmallows. I've shared this with you, but I want to go back over it because it's awesome. And what happened is they took a bunch of kids and they said to them, we will give you one marshmallow now, or if you wait five minutes or 15, depending on the age, we will give you two marshmallows or five marshmallows. The whole point was, can these kids say no to what feels good now so they can say yes to something better later. Well, what you may not know is that these kids were followed in through the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and even today, the kids that are still alive are still being followed by Stanford University. And do you know what the results are? This is profound. The kids who said no to what felt right now and said yes to the greater thing later, the ones who said no to the one marshmallow and yes to the two, three, or five, all, 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 had completely different life outcomes. They measured everything from BMI, life happiness, marital status, money in the bank, standard of living, overall joy in life, children, legacy, a whole bunch of things. On every single metric, the kids who said no to one marshmallow succeeded. So I'm with my daughters in the car, eight and six years old, and I proceed to tell them, you can have one marshmallow now, or if you wait five minutes, I will give you two later. My eight-year-old, wise as she is, says, oh, I'm definitely going to wait. thought, awesome. Elliot, you will be a success in life. You will take the world on. You're amazing. I have no more fears for you. My six-year-old says, oh, give me the one now. And I'm like, no. She's going to fail and do dumb things forever. I'm thinking her whole life is ruined. And then my oldest looks at her and says, why would you do that? Just take, take the two later. And she's like, but I want the one now. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, so we had a five-minute lecture on how to be a failure in life. You become a failure in life by saying yes to the one marshmallow and no to the two later. Come on, children. It was a great illustration for my kids, but this is how Moses lived. This is fundamental. He said, I can look at the one now or I can have the greater reward later. This is what Christians do, by the way. We constantly say no now because we're not just saying no now. We're saying yes to something infinitely better later. We're not just saying no because we're curmudgeons. We're actually saying yes to what God has for us. And this is what Moses got. He was able to see with discernment and clarity the reality of the pleasures of this life and that they were simply fleeting. But two marshmallows is always better than one. Can I get an amen? Unless you're my daughter and she is allergic to blue dye. And did you know that white marshmallows have blue dye? (sighs) Who would have known? Anyways, now we know. (laughs) Expect true faith will require strength, an inner fortitude. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? For he was looking to the reward. Here's the challenge. It's easy to say no to a marshmallow. I mean, these are inconsequential like items, but when you're looking at your idols, when you're looking at the things that are pulling your heartstrings, it takes fortitude, strength to look at these things when your whole body says give in 
and you have to say no, I'm going to say no to what feels good now so I can say yes to what is great later, it takes strength. Moses exercised, I think, a level of fortitude and strength that I've ever honestly seen many people exercise to say no to the platform and the position and the power and the pleasures that were offered to him, the security, and to say yes to a desert for 40 years, it's, it's inspiring. I look at him and I think to myself, if he can do this, I can do this. And I often wonder, in those moments, what would I do? What would I do? And these are the moments where faith, the instinct of faith, just rises up and it, it rises to the occasion. Those of you who are afraid of these moments, don't be afraid of these moments. The Holy Spirit and the grace of God will well up, I think, an incredible response in you if your faith is true. Expect eventually your faith is going to require endurance. Verse 27 says this, by, by faith he left Egypt, not, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What did he have to endure? The desert. The desert. I want, I want you to catch this. He left everything and went to nothing, and it was hard. And some of you would say, why would God ever ask me to do something this hard? I'm telling you why. Because what happened in the desert for the first 40 years was preparing him to take the people of God in the desert for the last 40 years. That God, in this hardship, in this endurance, in this suffering, was preparing in Moses through this trial, he was preparing him the leadership qualities, the expertise, and the knowledge he was going to have to have to lead God's people in the wilderness. If Moses did it for 40 years once, he can do it again. And so when Moses was taking God's people out of Egypt into the promised land, ended up being the wilderness, he wasn't aimlessly going. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew exactly how to lead in that context. Number five, expect true faith will require trust. Lots of it. By faith, he kept the Passover, and he sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. You got, you got to get some of the insanity of this. Um, this idea of Passover was new. This idea of um, the firstborn was new. And so God says, basically, oh yeah, kill this lamb, put its blood over your doorpost and tell everybody to do it. And if they don't, then God will kill all the firstborn children. You, you can imagine the Israelites responding to Moses. What, okay, God has put us as slaves in this foreign land for 400 years, and he's going to now kill our firstborn children if we don't put the blood of an animal above our doorpost? Like, what kind of God is this? And Moses is like, trust me. You have to trust me. I know this feels irrational. I know this doesn't make sense to you, but you have to believe me. This is what God said, and this thing is happening. I need you to believe me. And then it goes on in verse 29 and says this, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. They get to the edge of the Red Sea, and of course, the people grumbled and complained because that's what was in their heart. And I want to read to you from Exodus 14 what actually happened. Sitting at the edge of the sea, and it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They had no confidence in God. They had no prior history with God. All they knew is that their God had abandoned them to slavery, and now their God was abandoning them to death. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would, be, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses is like, oh, 
you guys are, you're morons, number one. Number two, listen. Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. My favorite line. Here's what he says. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Shut your mouths and watch. You're grumbling? He hates it. He will work salvation for you. This is his job. It's what he does. It's what he does. Now it's time to trust, to sit, and to watch. I really do believe that sometimes God doesn't rescue us right when we want on purpose. This would be an unforgettable moment for the rest of their lives. The Egyptians were on their tail. And at the last moment, God intervenes. Why? Because he's building trust. You ever feel like that? You could intervene now. It would be better. Now is a good time. <laughs> Come on, Lord. Like, I'd really appreciate it. You can show up right now. Wait, wait, wait. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Literally, it's about, I'm done. I don't have anything left in me. You do. You do. That's what happens. And then he shows himself. And because he didn't drop you this time, the next time this stuff comes around, he won't drop you again. Why, why would we encourage you with this? Why would we do all this? Why would we live differently? Why would we choose mistreatment? Why would we choose to be the weird ones? Why would we choose a message that isn't popular? I just want to give you one simple answer as we close. The one marshmallow, it's fleeting. The two, it's from God. One is temporary. The other is forever. I want to look at every Christian and say, play the long game. Play the long game. And, and here's what true faith is going gonna, is gonna to do. God is going to give you circumstances to grow your faith. And every time it's going to be a little harder and a little harder, but he's up to something. He's preparing you for something. He's growing you. He's deeping you. And he's showing you that he's a good dad who doesn't drop his kids, who is always there, and he will deepen your faith. This is what God does with true faith. Even if you just have a mustard seed, God loves to take these mustard seeds and grow them into trees that bless other people. And if you have an avocado, praise God for you. I'm jealous. <laughs> but this is what I know. God is going to ask you to do hard things, weird things, unique things, and you'll never regret it. And every time you walk into it, you will get done and say, huh, you're smart. I'm going to follow you next time. And then the next time comes and we're afraid and we go through the same rigmarole. But this is what he does. Let's pray together. Father, I am so grateful, first of all, that our salvation is not because we're good. It's not because we have some inherent righteousness inside of us. Um, but God, you have called us and chosen us and you have given us faith. And our salvation is because of faith. It's because of Jesus and not because of us. So God, on behalf of all your people, I just want to say thank you. It's our joy to be your children by faith. God, would you deepen our faith? God, we do confess that even the request feels a little scary because you do like to ask us to do hard, unique, weird things. But God, would you help us overcome our fear, overcome our anxiety? Would you give us the courage to take this mustard seed that so many of us have and to plant it and water it and to see it grow? And God, as our faith grows, as you deepen us, as our relationship with you goes deeper than we ever probably thought it could, Lord, would you just remind us that you get all the glory? This is ultimately for you. And so God, it's our joy to be your kids. And so 
with as much faith as it takes me to even ask this, would you deepen our faith for your glory, for the name of Jesus and our joy? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.